Just a quick reminder, we have a start time listed for each service, but not an ending time. And uh, we do that on purpose, so... So if you were, uh, you grab your Bibles, open up to Joshua chapter 22. Uh, if you were to take the book of Joshua, divide it into its major component sections, you would find four of them. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 focus on entering into the promised land. Chapters 5 through 12 is the conquest of the land. Uh, then 13 through 21, uh, where it talked about dividing it up, could be called the, taking possession of the land. And that brings us to chapter 22 then, the final section which is where we are today. And if you are going to continue that theme of the land uh, with that, you might call that final section retaining the land. In other words, uh, Joshua would be able to, you know, to, to say, uh, we came, we saw, we conquered, but now how do we make sure we keep the land? And that's what's uh, going to be the focus on the final three chapters. Each chapter begins with Joshua calling certain people to himself and then giving this charge, the charge of what Moses had passed on earlier that said, this is what you need to do to be faithful and to stay in the land. And the first group to come to Joshua were the warriors from the tribe of uh, Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh. So let, let me just remind you of a bit of a history for that. Prior to coming to the promised land, and you guys have heard this story, so you're, you're getting it down now, uh, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness uh, while the faithless and unbelieving older generation uh, all died off. They had come to, God had brought them to the edge of the promised land 40 years earlier. They did not enter by faith. They were too scared at that time. And God said, okay, you're going to be judged and we'll bring the next generation in. And so now they're back at the borders of the promised land and uh, also known as Canaan. And, and Moses, when he brought them back, first brought them into the southern end of the valley through which the Jordan River runs uh, down by the Dead Sea. And as they came into that area, they ran into an Amorite king of uh, Sihon and his capital city, um, Heshbon. And uh, these were, there's Amorites that lived on both sides of the river. This was those on the eastern side. And uh, God told them, don't fear him. I'm giving you a victory over them. They went to battle, defeated him completely. And so that was really the first battle uh, in the promised land takeover, even though it happened on the eastern side of the Jordan. They then went up the eastern side, clear to, to the top end of the, of the valley near the Sea of Galilee. And there they ran into another king, uh, King Og of, uh, of Bashan, and his territory on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, kind of what we would call the Golan Heights today and, and, and bigger territory than that. They defeated him as well. And so now the north and south on the east side were, t- uh, were taken care of. They went down then to the center part on the eastern side. And that's where they camped in the plains of Moab. And they were there for some time. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, this is near where they would then cross over the Jordan River to, to begin their campaign on Canaan proper, the, the promised land. And Balak was the king of Moab, and he was rightly scared of Israel uh, camping out there in, in his territory. And so he uh, decided that he was going to send for a diviner, uh, a guy from a, a country near the, the Euphrates River, to come and put a curse on the Israelites because he thought, well, that would help me to be able to defeat them. And that diviner's name was Balaam, 
and, and he has quite the fascinating story that we don't have time to, to fully develop this morning, but you probably remember him best as the man to whom a donkey spoke. Um, uh, that was that guy, and uh, this donkey was bra- basically rebuking Balaam for his stupidity, which I think is pretty bad when a donkey has to tell you that you're stupid. Uh, you know, because I'm thinking that's what God gives us friends for, right? <laughs> and I'm serious about that. I mean, I hope everybody in here has a friend that is close enough to you and faithful enough to you to tell you when you're being stupid. Uh, we need that, right? Uh, I have had many people in my life, many friends like that. Uh, my wife being, being one of them, the closest friend that I have uh, with that, you know, uh, that can call you out when you're being stupid and, and you're a better man, a better person because of that. So I hope you all have that kind of friendship in your life. We, we need that. Of course, we have to listen to them uh, in order to gain any benefit from that, which Balaam uh, didn't really follow through on that. So anyways, King Balak offered Balaam all kinds of money to come and curse Israel. But Balaam told him that he would only speak the words that God told him to speak, no matter how much money Balak offered. And, and so there you think, oh, that Balaam, he's a pretty good guy. He's a really stand-up guy, isn't he? And, and uh, we, we would put him in the category of hero. But again, we don't have time to get into the whole story. The truth is, Balaam's eyes were turned by the money, and so he offered up an alternative way for uh, Balak to defeat Israel. Can't, you know, don't feed them in, in war. I can't curse them. But here's a good idea. Why don't you uh, get the Midianites to all be, pretend to be friends with them? Invite them to come party with you, to, to do your, your religious celebrations, get them drinking, and then seduce them with the women, uh, the, the, which would be the pagan uh, prostitutes, temple prostitutes, and all that kind of stuff. And that's what they did. And, and it uh, deceived and captured Israel, and, and many people fell for that. Uh, and as a result, God ended up sending a plague through Israel, and 24,000 uh, of, the, of the people uh, died. And it was a very sad episode in, in Israel's community life. But Due to the righteous zeal of a few leaders, especially a guy named Phineas, and you're going to want to remember that name because he's going to pop up here in in Joshua 22. Uh, Phineas helped get the people back on track, and they were then able to experience God's grace and forgiveness and and move back forward. Uh, Then they went to war with those Midianites, defeated them, and so now at that point, they uh, controlled all of the land on the eastern side of the Jordan River from uh, the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea. And that brings us up to Joshua 22. And, and, and that land, all that land on the eastern side of the Jordan is called Gilead. Uh, the whole area is called Gilead. And it was great pasture land, perfect for grazing large herds of cattle, sheep, and goats. And three particular tribes of Israel had very large herds. Uh, raising livestock was their specialty in what they did. And those tribes were Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Well, what we read is that Reuben and Gad approached Moses about having their inheritance on, on this eastern side 
of the Jordan River. Well, at first, Moses mistook that for, for thinking, well, you guys just want to get out of, you know, going across and fighting and, and standing by your brothers and, and, and the whole battles and campaign of, of defeating the land. And they said, no, 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 that's not it at all. I mean, this, this, it's just that this land is perfect for our herds. So we promise we will come by, we'll stand by our brothers, we'll fight for however long it takes to take over the promised land. And that promise is in, uh, that they gave is in Numbers 32 where it says, our little ones, our wives, our livestock, all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead while your servants, everyone who is armed for war, will cross over in the presence of the Lord to battle, just as my Lord Moses there says. Okay, so that's what they promise. Now, we're going to skip ahead to Joshua chapter 1. A little bit of time passed from that. Moses had died. Joshua's now in charge. And Joshua had just informed everybody that in three days' time, they were going to be heading across the Jordan River to do battle. And, and then he goes and he reminds the leaders of, of Gad and Reuben, and at this time also half the tribe of Manasseh, because somewhere along the line, half the tribe of Manasseh decided to, to stay over there as well. Um, he reminded those leaders of their promise that they had made to come and fight. And their response was, they answered Joshua saying, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever, uh, and wherever you send us, we will go. They, they weren't going to back out of their promise. And so they built the sheep pens uh, for, their, for their cattle and they left their wives and children behind to go fight. The only men that would have been there with them were either those that were wounded or unfit or too old for war or the younger guys, 19 and below, that were too too young to go. That's who would have been protecting and doing all the work of the cattle and stuff while these men went off to battle. So now we can fast forward again to Joshua 22. And the very first word in Joshua 22 is the word then. But that then covers a, a very big and eventful time period, right? I mean, we had already seen in the last weeks as we've looked at this that there had been seven years of hard warfare as they were campaigning through the promised land to take over uh, that. They had defeated every major stronghold in the promised land. And, and, and once they did that, they had moved their headquarters from Gilgal, which was just on the western side of, of the Jordan where they passed over. They moved their headquarters up to to Shiloh, which is more centrally located. And then from that uh, new headquarters, they had spent time surveying the land and dividing it out into all the territories that we looked at and then establishing those special cities that we had looked at the, for the Levites and, and the cities of... of, of um, uh, uh, the word sanctuary city came to mind, and that's not the right one. That's a... What? Cities of Refuge, thank you. Cities of Refuge uh, that, that came there. And, and all of that had been taken place. And then, only then, after all of that, do we get to verse 1 of chapter two and 22 that starts with then. And at that point, finally, then, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. That's when he finally gets around to getting them before him. And I think, you know... Uh, it's pretty amazing that all those guys stuck around diligently during all that time, isn't it? I mean, as soon as that last battle was over, I'd have wanted to be heading back home. My wives, my family, my, my business, all of that was all waiting back there. But they silently and, and, and dutifully waited without complaining, without whining, without trying to say, hey, we got a right to you know, get back to our families, all this kind of stuff. They waited patiently for their commander to come and call them. And, and when he does, 
uh, he, 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 it's after all these other details are taken uh, care of. But when he does, Joshua then heaps some pretty high praise upon them. Look at the next verse in, in Joshua 22. It says, And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. So, you know, that's really quite a commendation, isn't it? You kept the commands. You listened to my voice. You did not forsake your brothers. You kept the charge. I mean, everything they said that they would do, they did. And because of that faithfulness, Joshua is able to say to them with with true honor and goodwill, therefore, turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. It was finally time for them to go home. And so just... Try to imagine at that point uh, the emotion of that time. You know, I have, I've never been in battle, but I have read lots of books and seen movies that depict the, the closeness and, and the brotherhood that develops between men who have shared in combat together. I mean, there is something very powerful about having to trust another person with your life, right? That, that opens up authentic and deep and enduring uh, relationships. It's a bond that can last for a lifetime. I mean, there, there aren't very many World War II veterans left since, you know, the war ended over 70 years ago. But of those that remain, even now, they all share stories of how they are closer to the men that they fought with than any other relationship they've developed in those past 70 years. I I would guess that it's pretty safe to say that there were a good deal of tears that were shed and hearty hugs that were exchanged uh, with with this uh, other nine and a half tribes before they left. I'll bet there was a lot of uh, sharing of stories together, you know. Hey, man, you remember when we stood back to back and we had the enemy all around us? You remember, you remember that time? You remember when we were on the night watch and the wind was blowing so hard and the sand was blowing in our eyes and we couldn't see anything? Do you, do you remember when we did that, that uh, s- surprise forced march at night so we could surprise the enemy and all this? You know, they would have been sharing all those stories as they were getting ready to go, uh, the camaraderie and, and the reminder of this is what it took to bring victory. That closeness is, is all of what they had. And before they left then, Joshua gives them one final word of encouragement and challenge. This is the charge that he's bringing to him. This is what Moses had said we need in order to retain the land. He says, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So just in that short statement right there, there's, there's four different uh, exhortations, right? Observe the commandment, love the Lord your God, hold fast to Him and serve Him. The, observe His commandment simply means to do the things that God said to do. And, and that concept was so important that it's actually repeated twice more in that very short time in the form of walk in His ways and keep His commandments. It, it said that. So obviously that was a key. And then loving God is the highest, most important condition we can meet that because if we love God, we will want to obey and and follow Him. And then the idea of holding fast referred to the idea of of not getting distracted 
or enticed or drawn off course by other things, something that would displace the preeminent place that God is supposed to hold in your heart and in your life. And then the final command to serve God uh, is specifically related to worshiping Him and worshiping Him only. Uh, the actual, the words uh, serve and worship, they both come from the same Hebrew root, root word and they carry the same idea. To serve is to worship and to worship is to serve God. So with that final charge, Joshua was then able to dismiss the two and a half tribes to return to their families and allotted territory. And so in verse 6 it reads, So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. You know, we hear that word tent, and especially you think in the army, and you think of all those little pup tents they got, you know, all in a row out in the fields, and oh, yeah, he just sent them and told them to go back into their barriers. What, are they, are they still having to wait around? But that's not it at all. When they heard that, what did they think? home. Tent was home. This, this, this is where they lived. Their wives, their children, their businesses were all waiting for them. And Joshua now was giving them that invitation. You're set. You can head out. They had received their honorable discharge and they were going home. So again, imagine the emotion of that moment for them uh, with excitement and joy, these guys would begin the journey home, and they're carrying with them all the spoils of war that they had earned. And now you got to know, you got to imagine, with every step closer to home, uh, their anticipation grew. And you can think by the time they're getting close to the Jordan River, they're like, man, we can hardly wait to get home. They're going faster and faster. But when they do finally get down to the Jordan River, they actually stop and take time for a little construction project. And we're told that they build an altar there, a great big altar, uh, one that was easily visible, and then they went home. Well, now, at that point in the story, it doesn't really tell us any details about the altar, why they built it, what the purpose was, uh, or, or even what it was like. So it's only as you read later on in chapter 22 that you find out uh, what it was. And, and we, there we find out that it was an, a replica of the altar that was in the in the tabernacle, uh, the altar of sacrifice. It was just like that, only on a much bigger scale. It was a massive altar. And the purpose that came out for it was this. The leaders and all the warriors of these two and a half tribes, they realized, boy, the Jordan River is, is going to be a huge barrier between us and the other nine and a half tribes. And so, you know, there was no bridges in those days. It was a wide and fast-flowing river at that time and, uh, and only had a few fordable spots across it. And then for several months out of the year during the early rains and the latter rains, it was in flood stage and was completely impassable at those times. And the cell coverage was horrible. So, so the reality was there was just not going to be any contact back and forth between them. There, there, was, there was going to be this huge barrier. So therefore they had what they thought was a great idea. Let's build this massive replica of the tabernacle altar as a symbol of the bond that unifies us. And what was the bond that unified them? Well, it was their worship of God, right? The one true God. And so they reasoned in their minds that then in generations to come, 
the sons of the nine and a half tribes that were over there wouldn't be able to say, oh, what do those guys have to do with us? I mean, they're over there. They don't belong to us. They, they're, they're not even the same people as us. They're, they're disconnected. They wouldn't be able to say that uh, because this altar would act as a witness that they did belong together because they all worshiped and followed the same God. That replica of the, the altar up in the, the, temp, uh, the tabernacle would do that. And in fact, they actually named the altar Ed. They named it Ed because Ed is the Hebrew word for witness. They named the, word, the altar witness. And, and this would be a witness that we are one people. Well, that was a good idea in their minds, but then they went, uh, that, that's when they, they built that, and then they went off and, and went back to their families. Well, pretty soon the rest of Israel heard about that, and uh, yet at that point, they also did not know the intent or the purpose behind it. So how did they respond when they heard about this altar that had been built? Well, verse 12 says, when the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. Now that verse should make you go, whoa, hold on here. What's going on? Why is that happening? Why this, this huge, negative, volatile reaction? I mean, these, these guys were their, their brothers. They had just got done fighting side by side. They had just parted as friends. And now they're ready to go out to a war against them? Well, the, there was actually a good and bad part to their reaction. The good is that they felt like and they believed that they were standing up for the honor and the pure, undefiled worship of God. You know, Fifty years earlier, when God had given the instructions about the construction of the tabernacle and the altar, at that time, God had told them that the tabernacle... And that altar of sacrifice would be the only place that would be acceptable to sacrifice to him. See, the sacrifice that he had initiated had a very specific purpose. It reminded the people that the penalty for sin was death. But it also showed them that the animal sacrifice on there pictured the truth that God would accept a substitute on their behalf, on the behalf of the sinner, so that the sinner would not have to die. Now, the animal was not that substitute. The animal is simply a symbol or a picture of the true substitute. It pictured the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that He would make on behalf of man. It is His death and His sacrifice that would pay for and wash away all of our sins. He was the substitute. That's what those sacrifices pictured. And since the animal sacrifice pointed to Jesus, it was very important to God that it was done exactly as He had commanded. The, the pagan worship all around Canaan that they practiced, uh, they sacrificed on all kinds of altars in all kinds of places, including outdoor altars in the high places, uh, this type of thing. And... And it was very perverted and corrupted. Not only was it directed at a false god, but the practices often also included uh, ritual, uh, illicit sexual activities, and some of them even child sacrifice. 
And God did not want his worship to be corrupted in any way by those types of things. So there were strict orders given from God. One tabernacle, one altar for sacrifice, and one means and way of doing it. That was it. Those nine and a half tribes, they were zealous for remaining true to God. And they thought, they saw that this other altar uh, was something wrong. It was going to be often, and they were not going to allow that. No way, no high. Uh, and, and here's the problem. They, they thought that because they had jumped to the wrong conclusion about the other two and a half tribes. They thought these other two and a half tribes were going to offer their sacrifices there and were abandoning the true faith. They were going to corrupt the worship of God with theirs, these other sacrifices. And for that reason, they were ready to go to war for them because they realized that God judged the whole nation when part of it was, was uh, faltering. So now, let me ask you a quick question. Have you ever jumped to the wrong conclusion about the words or the actions of another person? Now, I, I know there's, you know, some people that the only form of exercise they get is jumping to wrong conclusions, right? But... That shouldn't be us. And, and these guys, these nine and a half tribes, right, they would say that they weren't jumping to a conclusion because, you know, they had evidence, right? They had evidence to go on. There was that large uh, rogue altar that, that they could see with their own eyes. And it was designed exactly like the altar of sacrifice in the tabernacle. So obviously it had to be for, for offering sacrifices on, right? It made sense in their minds. Again, have you ever found yourself doing that? You see something. You heard something. You experienced something. And you interpret it in a certain way. And the way you interpret it does not leave the other person in a good light. And therefore, they become the bad guy. And you get mad at them. Maybe you said hi and someone walked right past you without even acknowledging you. Or you worked hard on some activity for the church or some other thing and hardly anyone showed up or you'd set up a, a lunch meeting with somebody and they didn't bother to show up or, you know, something is going on and you weren't invited or, you know, whatever. A million different things can happen. And, and sure, we can sometimes say out loud, well, I don't know what happened. I don't know what they were thinking. But oftentimes, banging around in our heart, in our head, we have some possible motives for why they did this. And those motives never leave that person in that good light, right? Or good standing. Now, why is it we always descend to the most negative thing about the other person? So you may have noticed that the title for today's message was How to Avoid Unnecessary Conflict. And, and the reality is much conflict happens because of misunderstandings or miscommunication. So here's just a couple of tips that we can glean from this story. Number one, don't, right? Don't jump to conclusions even when you think you've got the evidence to back up your position. And here's why. We don't always understand the evidence. We may think it means one thing when in fact it means something very different. We can so easily be wrong. And oftentimes when we are jumping to conclusions, that means we also have to assume that we understand or know what the other person was thinking, what the motives of their heart was. 
And it's always dangerous to think you know what was happening in someone else's head or in their heart. We don't know what they were thinking. I, I have more than once found myself being a mediator between warring people, right? And oftentimes I have had one or, or both of them say to me, I know exactly what they were thinking. Have you ever said that? Have you ever had anybody say that to you? You know exactly what they were thinking? Really? You can read minds? You can discern the motives of the heart? That's pretty amazing. See, the truth is we can't do that. So therefore, we, we should never jump to conclusions. That's the first step. But there's a second a more positive step that we can take. And thankfully, we see that in this story as well. Instead of just rashly running off to war with their, uh, with the, their other ones, the nine and a half tribes sent a delegation to talk. Well, there's a good idea, isn't it? Communication is the key to avoiding unnecessary conflict. And because of the seriousness of, of this accusation, they sent 10 guys, the head of each of the tribes, to do them, it's important people so that they could communicate their seriousness of this. And Phineas, that priest I told you about, who was zealous for following the righteousness of God, he knew that the holiness and righteousness of God, there could be no compromise with that. So he would stand firm on, on what they needed to do. But they came to talk. And, and, and they came to the two and a half tribes and they confronted them. And what they did was they clearly stated the case as they, as they saw, saw it. They said what they thought was going on. Uh, verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourself an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? They, so they, they stated, here's what we think you guys are doing. And then they reminded them of the fact that God judges them as a whole nation for their unfaithfulness. When some of them got mixed up with the trickery of Balaam, right? God sent a plague against the whole nation. Remember back in the first part against Jericho when Achan took some of the stuff that was under the ban, some booty for himself, and the whole nation was experiencing the judgment. They said, no, man, we can't do that. We don't want our whole nation, so what are you guys up to? But uh, then they did another good thing. Step three, they listened. After they said their peace, after they explained their heart, after they laid out their position, they listened to the two and a half tribes' defense. They didn't go in with their minds already made up because, you know, they know what they were thinking. And they didn't just state their position and not even give them a chance to respond. After laying out their side, they shut up. And they allowed Reuben and Gad and Manasseh to explain what their thinking was and, and, and what the purpose of the altar was. And, and then they reassured them that it was never intended for and would never be used for actual sacrifice and that it was only there to act as a witness that we are save, serving and, and following the same God. And then when they did that, the nine and a half tribes did something else. Another good step. They accepted them at face value. They trusted what they said. In verse 31 we read, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. 
accepting what they say in sincerity. That's as it should be between brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what builds strong relationships. So we have a great lesson that we can learn from this episode in their life because these are all things that we can put to practice in our life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for we thank you for your word which clearly shows us these things that happen so easily in our lives. And God, we do confess that sometimes we can be quick to judge the actions of another person without really knowing what the motives or the thinking of their heart was. So God, help us to be people who will be committed to communicating, to sharing, to hearing and listening, as well as explaining, so that, God, we can build those good and strong relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.